We're in Luke, the second chapter, and uh, I hope you saw the outline or have it in in front of you. Uh, We are in chapter two, and uh, my notes tell me that we left off last time with verse 22 of chapter two. So let me say a couple of things. Uh, We're looking at the section entitled Baby Jesus at the Temple, and that starts with verse 21 and goes through verse 40. Just as a reminder, what I said last week, what we know of Jesus' early years are all found in Luke chapter 2. And there are three scenes in Luke chapter 2. The first scene is one verse only, and that's verse 21, the circumcision of Jesus when he was eight days old. And that's what we looked at last time. And not only was it the circumcision of Jesus, but it was the announcement of his name. And, of course, uh, Joseph announced that his name is Jesus in keeping with what the angel told him in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 21, when the angel said to Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So we find that becoming true in verse 21. Now, today, we go to the second scene in this section, verses 22 to 40, that's when Jesus is one month old. So what I'd like to do is read beginning with verse 22, read through 40, and then we'll stop and talk about it. So chapter 2, verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you have promised, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You know what he's asking there? He's saying, take me home. I've been here. You've kept your promise. I've seen the Messiah face to face, so I'm now ready to die. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. All right, we'll stop there. This is scene number two in this last section of chapter two. Jesus is now one month old, actually about 33 or 34 days old. And so Joseph and Mary bring him to the temple, to Jerusalem, in order to consecrate him and also in order to offer a sacrifice. Now, why did they do that? I'll refer you to two Old Testament passages. The first is Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2. And it says, consecrate to me, God speaking, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then go to verse 12 of that same chapter. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Now, in addition to that, if you'll turn over a few pages to Leviticus, the 12th chapter, Leviticus, the 12th chapter, you'll find the part about offering to the Lord. So they're taking Jesus to consecrate him at the temple because the scripture says, take that firstborn male child to the temple, consecrate that child to the Lord. Then in chapter 13 and verse one through four, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when anyone has, oops, we're on chapter 12. I'm sorry, did I say 13? Chapter 12 of Leviticus, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. They did that. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. And then in verse um, 6, when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the women who give birth to a boy or a girl, but if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Now, that's a lot. But that's the reason that Joseph and Mary are taking Jesus to the temple to do two things that they're commanded to do. That is to consecrate the child to the Lord and to bring an offering to the Lord. Um, and, and that's what 
Joseph and Mary are doing. So I'm impressed with the obedience of Joseph and Mary. I'm not surprised because we already have learned in Scripture the kind of man Joseph was and the kind of woman Mary was, but I am nevertheless impressed by their exacting obedience. They are, they brought Jesus to be circumcised exactly when they were supposed to. They named him exactly what they were supposed to name him. And now here they are again with the sacrifice uh, and, and also to consecrate Jesus to the Lord. So they are being very obedient, which does not surprise us, but should impress us the obedience of both Joseph and Mary. So that says to us, I think, why did God select Mary? Why did God choose Joseph? Well, you're, I think you're seeing part of the reason here in their own obedience to the Lord. Was Mary sinless? No. Was Joseph sinless? No. But were they God lovers and God obeyers? Yes, they were. And so we are impressed with that. God has chosen well, of course, as you would expect, the home in which his son would grow up. Um, Joseph and Mary are poor. We, we, we just understand that maybe because we know the whole story and we've read it a, a gazillion times, but if you didn't know the whole story and you were just wondering, okay, what kind of, uh, what kind of person is Joseph and Mary? Are they rich? Are they poor? Are they middle-class, which in those days didn't really exist. So one revelation of the, fact that they were poor is found in verses 23 and 24 of Luke 2 that we read a moment ago in the fact that it is commanded if you can't afford a lamb and they couldn't then bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to offer as a sacrifice so that was what God said was acceptable for a family that could not afford a lamb and Mary and Joseph were poor they couldn't afford a lamb so they brought as it says in, um, in, in verse 23 and 24, uh, they brought a pair of doves and two young, or two young pigeons. And so they brought those to the Lord because they were poor. Now, let's think a moment about poverty and the way we look at it today. Poverty is not a sin. Poverty is not a sin. Now, sometimes we act like it is because we tend to look askance at people who are in poverty, in spite of the fact that many of you watching on this screen, you yourselves grew up in poverty. So we need to remember that poverty is, is not a sin. Now, sin can put you in poverty, that's for sure, and we've seen that many, many times, but being in poverty itself is not a sin. In fact, for some, it's a blessing, and let me explain that because we may say how could being in poverty be a blessing? Well, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 6, the writer of Proverbs says, Better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. And then also in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. So uh, sometimes a lack of material things allows people to 
devote more of their time and attention to the Lord, or it causes them to do that. Now, the rich person can do that too, but often they choose not to because their focus is on the accumulation of stuff and the maintaining of stuff and the keeping of stuff. So uh, being rich or being poor in and of themselves is not a sin, nor is it necessarily an incredible blessing if you do not know how to handle that which God has chosen to give to you. So just something for us to keep in mind. Mary and Joseph were poor, but Mary and Joseph had integrity and they had wisdom and that led them to obedience and that led them to be a great example for their son, Jesus, who Hebrews tells us learned obedience in his home. Now they encounter a man named Simeon. I'm intrigued by him. I wish I knew more about him. All we know about him is found in the text that we read today. But what we do find about Simeon is he is a man full of faith. Now, would it be okay with you if when your time comes to go to heaven, that basically all people knew about you was you're a man or a woman of faith? Wouldn't that be cool? I think it'd be awesome. Now, we don't know all that much about Simeon, but we know he's a man of faith. He was waiting for the Messiah, and God had told him, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah face to face. What a great promise. Uh, I wonder what life was like for Simeon walking around every day in the temple and looking and saying, could that be him? Could that be him? Could that be him? Well, honestly, we have no reason to think that because uh, the Spirit of God moved him when he encountered Mary and Joseph and the baby just to know this is, this is him. Now, that morning, did God wake Simeon up and say, Simeon, today's the day. Go to the temple. I'm going to show you the baby. Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. There are a lot of things we'd love to know that we don't know. But what we do know is he was at the right place where God wanted him to be. And when he saw Mary and Joseph, he knew, because the Spirit told him, he knew this is the Messiah. And now what does Simeon say? He's an old man. He may have all the aches and the pains of, of, uh, of his age. And so now he says, okay, I am, I am happy. I have seen the Messiah and I am ready to go home. Well, do you remember back two or three weeks ago uh, when we talked about the four songs that are found in Luke 1 and 2. Just as a reminder, this is the last one. As a reminder, there was the Magnificat, which was sung by Mary in chapter 1, verse 46 to 55. That was song number one. Number two was the Benedictus, these Latin names that have been given to them. Chapter 1, verses 68 to 79, sung by Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. The third is found in chapter 2, verse 14, sung by angels, glory and excelsis Deo. And then the fourth is this song of Simeon, found in verses 29 through 32. And the Latin name given to it is Nuc Dimittis. That's N-U-N-C, second word, D-I-M-I-T-T-I-S, Nuc Dimittis, which simply means now you dismiss. That makes sense. Nuke, that sort of sounds like now. Demitis sort of sounds like dismiss. You see there's a great correlation between Latin and English. 
Um, if you know Latin, you probably were, uh, if you learned Latin in school, you were probably a better English student for it because you learn a lot of English from Latin. They go back and forth. Our language comes from Latin. So here's the song sung by Simeon. Now you dismiss me. The full, the full wording, I'm not trying to impress you with Latin. I'm just throwing it out there. Nunc dimittis servum tuum domine. You recognize the word domine, God. Now you dismiss your servant, O Lord. Now you dismiss your servant, O Lord. So we call it a song. Just like we call uh, what Mary did a song, what Zechariah did a song, and the angels did as a song. And can I prove they really were songs? I, I really can't, but I would not be surprised, uh, especially Mary's, uh, that she put that to music. The angels, we, we believe they were singing, glory to God in the highest. Um, did Simeon stand there and sing? I don't know. Maybe he did. But whatever the case, we call it the Song of Simeon, Nuke Dominus. And basically all he's saying in our modern day vernacular is, now take me home, Lord. I've, I've seen the Messiah. You kept your promise. I'm ready to go and be with you. But notice in those verses, in verse 32, he makes it clear, although most of the Jews weren't listening, they weren't listening but he says the Messiah comes for both Gentile and Jew, both Jew and Gentile. The Messiah comes for all of us. And he blessed Mary and Joseph and then uttered a prophecy. In that prophecy, he said, this Messiah, this baby is going to divide his people. Well, on what basis did he divide his people? Very simply this, some believe some do not. And guess what? Jesus continues to create division today between those who choose to believe in him and those who do not. And that prophecy comes from Simeon. Some will believe, many will not. When it comes to the Jews, sadly, many, most, do not. Now he tells Mary, the sword is going to pierce your soul. Um, every mama on the screen, you know what that means, don't you? The death of that son pierced the soul of his mother as if it were a sword right through her heart. You understand that? Some of you have lost children. You know how painful it was and may continue to be. And he is saying to Mary, the day is coming when this child, because of this child, a sword will pierce your soul. Mary was beginning to comprehend that, but she could not possibly know all of its fullness yet. But in about 30 years, she will. Now, Anna Daughter of Penuel. You know what Penuel means? Face of God. How would you like to have a daddy whose name means face of God? That was Anna's privilege to have a daddy whose name was Penuel, face of God. She was from the tribe of Asher. 
which if you find a map with the children of the tribes of Israel, you'll find that Asher comes from the far northern part of Israel. Anna married young, don't know how young, but she married young, was married seven years, her husband died, and she's been a widow and she's now 84. That's a long time to be a widow. She serves the Lord constantly. She's well known around the temple. She was constantly giving thanks and worshiping the Lord. And she spoke about the child that she was able to see also. She spoke about the child to all who would listen and was saying, my eyes have seen the Redeemer. He's coming. Now, because she was well known and apparently well respected, her words around the temple would have been taken very seriously when Anna said, my eyes have seen the Redeemer. And when Simeon said, I'm ready for the Lord to take me home. My eyes have seen the Messiah. My arms have held the Messiah. The consolation of Israel is here. And that would have been an exciting moment for everyone who heard Simeon or heard Anna. So now an obedient Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus back home. And in verse 40, we find all we know about the years between the 12 years between this encounter with Simeon and Anna and the time when Jesus turned 12 years of age. That 40th verse tells us all of it. And here's again what it said. The child grew and became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. I, I you know, I think of, of children and I would love to have um, seen Jesus as a baby or a little child to see what he was like. But it tells us he was quite the young, the young child. Verse 40 lets us know everything we know. Like to know more. We know everything we need to know. The scripture is complete. Sometimes we say, well, why didn't God tell us more about this or that? Because the scripture tells you everything you need to know. And that's all you need to know. And it's sufficient. Okay. Now, um, yeah, we're doing great. Let's go to verse 41 because now he's 12 and the boy Jesus is going to come back to the temple with his mother and father, her earthly father. And it's going to be quite a few days in the life of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So let's look at verse 41 of chapter 2. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. You see again, Mary and Joseph coming to Jerusalem every year for Passover. Again, impressed with Mary and Joseph. And if you look at a map of Israel, you would look at the distance between Nazareth and Jerusalem and say, oh, that's that was easy. Well, it would be today, but it was not then because they were traveling several days by foot to get to Jerusalem. So this was not an easy journey 
Yet every year, Joseph and Mary made the journey. And verse 42 says, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, what's what do we call that custom today when a, a Jewish male child is uh, taken to the to the synagogue or in those days to the temple what do we call that event that happens in a child's life anybody want to hop on and tell what that is bar mitzvah bar mitzvah when it's done for a girl what is it called silence bit mitzvah it's a bit mitzvah when it's a girl and a bar mitzvah when it's a boy. So here we go. This is, uh, in effect, the bar mitzvah for, for Jesus, although that term was not used at that time. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, every parent in the room, did your heart just pick up, your heart rate just increase? After three days, they finally, I'll insert that word in there, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So every year, Joseph and Mary with Jesus would make a journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and families would travel together. Nazareth was not a huge place. So probably lots of families, uh, friends gathered together, and they would make the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, spending several nights on the road, um, all cooking together and sleeping near each other. So this this is a, like a family affair or at least a friends and neighbor affair as they would go to Jerusalem every year. It probably was the situation where the parents were not overly concerned about the whereabouts of their children, because, I mean, you know, everybody knows everybody, and so there's not much to worry about. The crime rate was not what it is today, and so folks, they just wouldn't have worried. Maybe kind of like if you have a family reunion out in the country somewhere, and kids are all off playing, you're not really too concerned about where they are, because they're all playing together. Only when it's time to go home would you be concerned if your child doesn't show up. Well, even then, Mary and Joseph started back home because they just assumed Jesus is with uh, our traveling group here. And so they're they're enjoying the company of, of neighbors and friends. And it's time to go home. And no concern on the part of Joseph and Mary 
until it gets dark and it's time for bed. And where is he? So they turn out the next morning and go back to Jerusalem and he's missing. I use the term missing in quotes. Jesus wasn't missing. It's just Joseph and Mary were missing him and they couldn't find him. Now, parents, three days and your child is, uh, where is your child? Can you imagine the feelings of terror that you would have in your heart, especially in the world we live in today? And so there's a lot of tension and Mary and Joseph are extremely worried. And, and so at what point they decided to go to the temple? I don't know, but they go to the temple and there he is. What is he doing? Visiting with the scribes, the teachers, the rabbis, asking amazing questions, being asked questions and giving amazing answers. And the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers, the rulers are blown away by the wisdom of Jesus in answering his questions. You know, here's a little thing I've I've always wondered about. When Jesus began his adult ministry years later, I wonder if any of those scribes, Pharisees, teachers remembered and put it together and said, oh, that's that kid grown up to be a young man. You know, that's just one of those things. I don't know why I spend time thinking about things like that, but I've, I've often wondered, anybody think about it and put it all together? Maybe, maybe not. Well, Mary is pretty concerned. So, so picture the scene. Um, I'm sure that Mary hugged her child. Doesn't say it, but she's a mama. I'm sure she hugged her child. She may have said, I love you. Where have you been? And then, uh, what many of our daddies would have done. I'm glad to see you, but we're going out to the woodshed for a visit. So the parents were upset with Jesus for remaining behind. And Jesus says, why were you upset? Don't you understand? I've got to be about my father's business. Now, Jesus is not being disrespectful. Don't look at it as saying Jesus is talking back to his parents. He is not. He is simply stating the truth. I am, I am submissive to my father in heaven. And that's why I'm here. That's why I have been gone for this time. So verse 49 um, is a profound, Jesus has a profound understanding of his identity. Because in this, do you see the clear claim he's making? When he says in verse 49, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? He's not talking about Joseph's house. He's talking about God's house. And he says, my father's house. So there is a profound understanding about his own identity on the part of Jesus. He is the son of God. And he he understands that. Now, he's not being rude because we find as we continue in the text that he humbly returns home with Mary and Joseph. And it says he was obedient to them in verse 51 as he continued to grow up. And it says Mary pondered all that in her hearts. And, And guys, you and I know no one ponders better than a mother. 
And Mary was pondering everything Jesus had done and everything Jesus said. And in verse 52, it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That word favor in the, in, in the, in the Greek is a form. It, it actually says karatai. And the base word for that is charis, which is translated grace in English. So it literally says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in grace with God and man. He was graced in his relationships with God and man, his vertical and his horizontal relationships. He was distinctive, and it was obvious that he was extraordinary. Now, there's much to be said for an obedient and submissive spirit, which Jesus clearly demonstrated. Now, um, let me go back for a second to Simeon. He talks about the suffering that is coming to Jesus. What Mary and Joseph understood at that point, we don't know. But you would understand the severity of words if you have a ba- your baby in your arms and a prophet says, this baby's going to suffer. You, you understand that word is not a, not a pleasant word. How much did Mary and Joseph understand? We don't know. Joseph will die before we get to the public ministry of Jesus. And Mary, as she pondered things and as she thought them through and as the Spirit of God spoke to our, her heart, I believe began to understand more and more in the passing of time exactly who her son was. And she remembered not only the words of Simeon, but the words of the angel who announced the birth of Jesus to her. Now go back to Simeon for a moment. He says, not only will Jesus suffer, but you, Mary, you're going to suffer as it is a sword will pierce your soul. William Butler Yeats wrote a poem entitled The Mother of God. Maybe you read it years ago. Here's what it says. What is this flesh I purchased with my pains? This fallen star my milk sustains. This love that makes my heart's blood stop or strikes a sudden chill into my bones and bids my hair stand up. Now that's a interesting poem by Yeats, but it comes, its basis is what he knew of scripture, but with particular focus on this incident in Jerusalem with Simeon. Now let's pause a minute. And uh, do you have a question that you'd like to ask or a statement you'd like to make? Unmute yourself and speak. And if not, I'll go on. Okay, I don't hear anything, so I'll go on. We come to chapter 3, the message of John the Baptist. So we're not going to go far with this one today. But look at verses 1 and 2 
of chapter 3. And notice the particularity of Luke. Luke is a researcher. He is an historian. As well as being a physician, he researched well. He interviewed well. He was a great listener as the stories of Jesus were shared with him. And we see that he is precise in his detail. You'll see that in verse 3, chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Aturia, and Traconitus, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, somewhere near Hardin-Simmons, I think. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, let's pause there for a minute. I don't know how you get any more specific than that as far as a time frame is concerned. Tiberius is the Caesar who followed Augustus. Remember Caesar Augustus that um, announced the census. Joseph and Mary, as a result, went to Bethlehem. God used Augustus to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But all of this detail on the part of Luke allows us to date this chapter as events occurring 27, 28, and 29 A.D. Now, remember, Luke's an historian and a researcher as well as a physician, and he names names. Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea, and there are three tetrarchs, and their names are listed here specifically, and their names historically what we know about them from extra-biblical accounts lets us know that their names are all associated with wickedness, with sin. I thought about a long discussion of that, but saw that not being very profitable. But the prefects, tetrarchs, Philip, Licinius, Herod, all associated with wickedness, and then we come to two religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, by the way, I always have to tell this story in case you don't know it. For years and years and years, Bible doubters, uh, liberal theologians who wanted to cast doubt on the Bible, would say the story and account of Pontius Pilate is myth. There is no record of a Pontius Pilate ever having existed, it's simply a mythological story, as is most of the Bible. Well, archaeology constantly affirms the truth of Scripture. And in 1961, in Caesarea by the sea, some of you have been there with me, in Caesarea, a farmer was, um, with a backhoe, was digging in the ground, and he hit something hard, so he stopped and moved the dirt a little bit and could see that there was something that made of marble that he had just hit with his backhoe. So in Israel, that means you stop what you're doing, no matter what it is, and you call the Antiquities Bureau, 
and they'll come and look and then tell you whether you're done or whether you can continue your work. And in this case, that farmer was done, at least in that location, because what they had discovered was a column. And on that column was some writing that dated back to the first century. And guess whose name was on that column? Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And so all the theologians who thought they were so smart and said there is no such person as a Pontius Pilate were proven wrong. He did exist, and he is a significant figure in, um, in the account of the life of Jesus, obviously. We'll come back to him later. Now, Annas and Caiaphas' names are mentioned, and with that I'm going to close. Uh, Annas was the high priest of Israel from 6 to 15 A.D., now, after him followed a son, followed by another son, followed by another son. You weren't high priest forever. It was not some, a position you kept forever, nor was it a position that was supposed to be like a king, but it became that way. Annas succeeded by a son, then another son, then another son, and then Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. Now, without a lot of detail, that gives us the picture of Annas as kind of a godfather of the, uh, of the high priests. And what it really tells us is this is an illustration of nepotism at its worst. Annas had it all tied up in his family, the high priesthood of Israel. And his son-in-law Caiaphas is the high priest. And uh, if you've read the New Testament, we don't like him. We don't like either one of them, and we'll see more about both of them, particularly Caiaphas, as we get farther along in the book of Luke. So now, like an Old Testament prophet, the word of the Lord is going to come to John, the son of Zechariah, a cousin of Jesus. He lives in the wilderness, and he's going to come out from there with a message to proclaim to the people. And that's where we're going to stop. And next week, we're going to pick up with the message and the person of John the Baptist. He is one of the most fascinating, incredible people in all of Scripture. And if you're impressed with John the Baptist, you should be, because Jesus himself said there's never been a man greater than John the Baptist. Never one born of a woman. Okay, that narrows the field to all people because we're all born of a woman. There's never been a man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Wow. So we're going to follow John a bit next week. What does he have to say? And what is his purpose? And what does he do in relationship to Jesus? And that'll be next week in the third chapter. All right. Anybody have any final words they want to say before you uh, sign off, finish your lunch or whatever it is you need to do? No one speaketh. You know, what will be better than this uh, is the day we're able to get back together and eat lunch together and uh, have our Bible study. I, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to that. I still have an appetite. All right, God bless you all. Let me pray, and then um, you're welcome to hang around if you want to talk to people, but if you're not, then you can you can sign off. Father, thank you.
for your precious word, what we've learned today about the childhood of Jesus and the amazing things that we've read. And as we move to chapter three and we see Jesus as an adult and we see the baptism of John the Baptist, we, we continue to be utterly amazed and grateful and thankful. So bless us in the continuation of our study of the gospel of Luke. Just all as we go about our responsibilities for the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you all. Have a great rest of your Wednesday.